Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 334th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Meg Bartelt. Meg is the founder and lead financial planner for Flow Financial Planning, a virtual RIA serving mid-career women in tech that oversees almost $60 million in assets under management for 60 client households. What's unique about Meg, though, is how over the span of seven years since launching her firm, she's evolved the business by repeatedly adapting her niche focus, iterating on different fee models, experimenting with various client meeting cadences, and both increasing and decreasing her staff headcount with various support team structures, all on the journey of honing in on the right type of practice that Meg will enjoy running and serving clients with on an ongoing basis. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, when Meg launched her firm, she began with $150 per month minimum fee, but quickly realized it wasn't enough to sustain the business that she wanted to build, and began raising her fee minimums to what ultimately became $10,000 per year after her business coach helped her realize what her financial planning is really worth to her clients. Why Meg evolved her niche focus from working mothers in tech to early to mid-career women in tech with a specialization in pre-IPO planning as she realized being more specific, she could create better efficiencies in her own practice by simplifying what she did and didn't need to focus on for her clients. And how after a year of experimenting with surge meetings, Meg decided to go back to annual review meetings because she found the structure didn't allow enough flexibility for the unique complexity of her clientele and created challenges in finding the right time to take on new clients. We also talk about why Meg chose her niche focus of women in tech because she realized that what it takes to make a niche powerful is finding clients with some kind of shared identity is that's what makes it easier to find where they gather to reach them. Why Meg feels strongly about setting fees in explicit dollar amounts and actually locks her client's annual AUM fee at a fixed dollar amount that just resets once each year. And why Meg views evolving her firm over time as a a comfort, not a frustration, because it allows her to keep finding better ways to serve clients while also creating more space for herself and a better experience in managing her practice. And be certain to listen to the end, where Meg shares how she sought advice from her business coach and therapists and colleagues to come to terms with needing to let a staff member to go to relieve some of the economic constraints her business was feeling after a year of market volatility and changes in the tech industry. Why Meg feels comfortable with evolving her fee model and service model and other aspects of the business because she feels as long as she holds true to being there for her clients when they need her, she's continually building a more successful business despite any ongoing changes. And why Meg feels that she's now finding a transition to a second stage of life where she prioritizes less on maximizing the income of the business and more on creating space and freedom in the business to foster deeper relationships with clients and those around her, especially her two daughters. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Meg Bartell. Welcome, Meg Bartell, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for pronouncing my name right. Always a delight. Yes, I guess you get your share of Bart Bartlets instead Bartlets. of Bart, Bartelts. Yep. So welcome, Meg Bartelt, to the Financial <laughs> Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, I'm I'm excited for the conversation today, and there's this dynamic I find for the the, the growth of advisory firms that uh, just 
like the first year or two or sometimes three, like pretty much sucks horrifically for, mm-hmm. for everyone. Like uh, some firms get going a little faster than others or find things that work for them a little quicker than others. Like the, the first few years are basically sucky for everyone. And then like the promise of it is eventually it grows and it gets a little better and like you get a little more revenue going and like the financial pressure is off and then you get a few more clients and the dollars actually start getting pretty good and leaving you, you can like hire a person if you want to and offload some things you don't like doing and and get a little time back and like it gets to a better point and then i find for for some firms like the problem is like it doesn't stop at that point right by mm-hmm. now like you're many years in you're getting more clients. Your like presence and brand is getting known. You've got an actual decent base of clients that can start sending you referrals. Like the growth keeps going, and when the growth keeps going, the pressure tends to be to at some point like you got to hire more people because you got to do the service for all the clients that are getting added in. Uh, and then sometimes it starts feeling less good, mm-hmm. uh, and there's this like more money, more problems, complexity stuff that starts to kick in. And so I I was I was struck in just. You know, we've crossed paths in in many times and ways over the industry, and I, I know that you know you're you're many years in and experience a version of this phenomenon. Or like, I'm in my seventh year, and I think this was the worst year since my first. <laughs> yep. I'm just like that's that's an interesting transition. So, uh, I was going to sort of call it like make an analogy like the seven year itch and like marriage dynamics up for you get to a certain point. Like, I guess it's not that dynamic exactly, (laughs) but the, just this, like, you know, when the business grows to a certain level, like, you know, it's supposed to get simpler when you've got dollars and you can hire people and solve some of these problems. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't get simpler. And, and so just, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more of your, uh, your journey of like, how how it got going and grew and got better and then how it kept growing and got not better <laughs> no, that's diplomatic yes so so i think to to kick us off um if i ask you just just get us level set a little bit about the advisory firm like what you do as it exists today mm-hmm. and and then we can talk a little bit about how how this journey has evolved over the years okay so uh my financial planning firm is flow financial planning it is seven years old next month. Uh, we are currently a team of three. So I am the lead planner. We have an associate planner, Yaram, and an operations uh, person, Janice. We work with roughly 60, 60 clients. And our target clientele is women in their early to mid-career in the tech industry um, with a, a particular specialty in pre-IPO companies. Okay. And are you in a part of the country that is IPO-ish? Is that like a local thing for you? Well, I'm 90 miles above Seattle. So I'm sort of tech kind of sort of adjacent, but the firm has been virtual since day one. Um, Okay. So it's it's not a like we're right outside of Seattle and working with Microsoft and all the other local Seattle-ish companies. Uh, uh, Correct. But in there fact, happens to be some local. <laughs> it's a pretty small minority of our clients that are in the state of Washington. In fact, mostly in California, obviously in the Bay Area, Southern Southern California, and then uh, New York City. Okay. And then how do you um, help us understand uh, like typical clientele and, and, and fee structure? I mean, are, are like, do you measure assets under management? Do you measure total revenue? Like uh, help us understand sort of 
size, like revenue size or uh, of the business overall? Sure. Um, AUM, we have, I think it's around 60 million. Okay. Uh, But the, I'm not sure how useful a metric that is because a lot of our clients have very little to no assets under management with us. All of their assets are in their 401k. Um, And then we have a handful of clients who got very lucky uh, in, in tech IPOs over the last few years. And they've got, you know, between five and 15 million under management. Uh, so it's just really skewed. Okay. Um, uh, so probably more helpful is this year we'll probably have about $650,000 of revenue. Okay. Um, so sort of 60 clients mean math kind of straight poor, like typical client is a $10,000 plus client household. Correct. So okay. currently, and for the last year or two, our minimum fee per year has been $10,000. Um, we, we still have, you know, a a good handful of clients who signed on with us before we raised the minimum to that. So we have a good handful of clients below 10,000. Um, but that is the minimum for any new clients we've signed on for a couple of years now. Um, and then some clients who pay us meaningfully more, uh, because their, their assets are so huge. And, and how does that work in just in terms of, of fee structure? I mean, are you, a like a flat fee or retainer fee style model, or are you like an, an AUM style model that goes up as they add assets? You just also have a minimum to, yeah. to cover the, the core overhead? I would say I'm closer to an AUM, a traditional AUM model with okay. a, a minimum annual fee as, as opposed to a minimum um, asset under management size from the client. But I also, I think the one thing that distinguishes our fee model from the traditional, you know, percentage of AUM model is that we actually set our fees annually as a dollar amount. So every year a client gets an email that says your fee for the next 12 months is $10,000 or $15,000. But you might calculate that number because they have 1.5 million with you and 1% of that is $15,000. Right. So, so then why, why that, so I guess I have a few questions. And so uh, first, like why why that structure? In part, kind of reminds me of um, so eight years ago, my family left where we were living in Virginia in search of a new place to live. We didn't want to live in Virginia, but we didn't know where we wanted to live. And so, my husband and I, and a four year old and one year old, got in a minivan and drove around the country for two and a half months. Um, and by the time we ended up in Bellingham, Washington, I was like, here's good. Here doesn't suck. And I really, really need to get out of this minivan and live in a house. Um, so because- it's a long way to get from Virginia to Bellingham, Washington, a van too, especially yes. with little ones. <laughs> with a four, yeah, right. So we could drive four hours a day because we had to drive while they were sleeping. Um, uh-huh. So in this <laughs> sort of in an analogous way, I've tried a lot of different approaches to fee models. Uh, and then I got to this one and thought, you know what? I am sick of changing fee models. <laughs> this one seems to be reasonable. Uh, I'm sticking with it until something pushes me off of it to, to put a little more color on that. Um, years ago, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, I'm part of the XY planning network community, which you know, of course, uh, but there is just this ongoing conversation around what is the proper fee model. And I remember Will Kaplan, a fellow advisor, um, years ago said something like basically, who cares what the fee model is as long as you're being paid an appropriate number of dollars. And that really stuck 
with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the years, I paid more attention to, okay, for the work I'm doing for these clients, for the value we're providing them, what's an appropriate amount of money for us to be paid? And then tried to make a pretty simple fee model that would get us close to that dollar amount. Um, and I really thought that being ultimately being paid less than $10,000 a year for what we do was too little. Um, and our AUM structure, the, the percentage tails off really quickly after a million. Uh, it's not 1% to the moon. Um, so it does the fee, the calculated fees can, do tend to cluster around 10,000. Can you give us some further context? I mean, just like how, how far do they fall off? I mean, you're talking like it's, it's a million on the first, it's 1% on the first million and like yeah. 20 basis points thereafter, sure. like it just drops sure. all the way down. Yeah, it's 1% to a million, 50 bips from 1 million to 3 million, 25 bips from 3 million to 15 million, and then 15 bips after that. Okay. Uh, So, and then help us understand just where did this, like, we don't just calculate this AOMP, like, we convert it to dollars and email it to you. Yep. Uh, Going back to the... (sighs) the sort of raging fee debate that never dies in our profession. The one stake I will put in the ground, the one hill I'm willing to die on is that it needs to be very clear to the client how many dollars they're paying you per year. I don't care if you calculate it with a complexity calculator or net worth and income or percentage of AUM, but it needs to be in very obvious black and white, how many dollars they are paying you. Um, that's a sort of point of principle and point of pride for me. And so that's not necessarily a like I like I said it this way for a billing process or I said it this way for a, like a particular type of clientele I'm 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 working with per se that's just a, like this is this is my philosophy around fees and how I run my business and show up for my clients and that's the hill I'm dying on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, it certainly is appropriate for a lot of our clients who don't mm-hmm. have a lot of assets, right? I mean, that was the whole sort of essence of the XY planning network. Yep. So th- the thrust of it was, look, there are plenty of people in their 20s and 30s and 40s who make a lot of money. Their income's high. Their their manageable assets simply yeah, I mean, aren't. Like pre-IPO tech employees at some some of the companies on that track, like not only is there a lot, a lot of uh, you know, potential assets in the future as they as they may IPO, but like they tend to make really good yes. incomey income now too, and have That's a lot of complexity because tech company options and ISOs and non calls and RSUs and Phantom and all the different like there's a lot of stuff yes. for potentially a lot of years before eventually hopefully this thing IPOs and there's right. liquidity events right, and and I want to be. I mean, the earlier people like that work with a financial planner, the more mm-hmm. likely it is that their IPO is going to be successful by their definition. Um, right. So I definitely want to sort of offer up a service that is more appealing to people so, before they have, you know, gonzo actual, you know, dollars in the bank. Um, so, yeah. so you quote them what the coming fee is going to be, mm-hmm. uh, but are you still otherwise like billing on an AUM basic like do you still divide sure. it by four and pull it out of the account every every quarter you're just like doing a separate proactive like let me make sure you're crystal clear about what this fee is coming yeah. out to be uh we do both so we use uh, you know uh, practically speaking we use both advice pay and managed account quarterly debits uh so for clients who 
because yeah. some people literally don't have an account for you to debit in the right, first right. place. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, if they've got their $6,000 Roth IRA, it's, <laughs> I'm not debiting from that. Um, right. So it really is, in a way, uh, up to the client, but we definitely, you know, suggest, hey, do you want to switch to debiting from your quarterly, from your managed account now, um, if we think that might be appropriate for them? And just maybe this is like my brain nerding out on the mechanics of this, mm-hmm. but like if you tell them your fee for the year is this, mm-hmm. does that mean they're locked for the the year? I mean, like what if the market goes up after the first quarter? Like, are you are you still going to bill them whatever Sucks the AUMP comes out to be? Right? Because I was saying, because I'm like, I'm just channeling a regular. It's like, Meg, I have the documentation of your email, what you said the fee was going to be. You can't make a different fee three months from now because the market went up. So you you do that like you – when you tell them the fee and you do that calculation, like you're locked for the year at that yes. point. Yes. Yep. And so, so when, is that everybody at the beginning of the year? Like, just you go through that cycle for everybody? No, or? there's they're smeared out over the year, more okay. or less, just tied to when they started working with us. Okay. Which I guess helps from the business end that, like you, that reduces the exposure of like, wow. That was a absolutely horrible two week stint right before my billing period for me to lock a year of fees in. So just if every client goes through this on their renewal, uh, at least like the 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 adjustments up or down are graduated throughout the year. So you kind of buffer your own market volatility. There you go. I'm I'm dollar think, cost averaging my client revenue. There, yeah, perfect. <laughs> I had to be honest, have never thought about it in that way. Uh, but hey, that's good rationalization for continuing to do it this way. So then I'm, I'm, um, now I'm curious as if you've gone through this journey. It's like, what, uh, like, w- what are the fee models like on the cutting room floor? If, you were, <laughs> if you've been like iterating through this, like sure. where, where did it start and where did it go along the way? Yep. Well, it started uh, with $150 a month because okay. that was the XYPN pattern when I was first starting out and had no idea what I was doing. Um, and then after I got my first client and did one month of work for them, thought, oh, that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> uh, so then I just kept the same fee model and just raised the monthly minimum. And I also charged separately for... It was there was a fixed monthly fee for planning and then a low percentage. Don't ask me what it is at this point. I've forgotten, but you know, a, a low number of bips for investment management. So there'd be two separate fees. Uh, so whatever, you know, it goes up like three hundred dollars a month and thirty basis points or something. And like you, you, you pay me both. This fee is for the financial planning, and then this fee is for the investment yes. management. And like that, that was the. Yeah, uh, that was the structure. So why? I mean, I get raising the monthly fee, mm-hmm. uh, right? Just oh my gosh, I did a lot more work for that client than I am recovering at one hundred and fifty dollars a month. So, like, I get raising the fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what brought you to saying like, all right, I need an asset management layer on this as well? I think it was just simplicity. You know, the client sees one dollar amount that they're paying me as opposed to two, especially if. Of those two numbers, one is a dollar amount and another one's a percentage of assets. So that, that's why you eventually consolidated it into yep. just saying one asset management fee with a minimum? Yeah. Like, look, I'm offering you one comprehensive service. I'm going to charge you one fee. And then I'll loop back to the, 
I know this isn't the perfect fee model, but it's good enough. And I'm so sick of having to think about ways to improve it. I'm just not going to. I guess I'm just curious, like what, when you start in a monthly subscription only, like why, why in the AUM direction instead of like just ratcheting up the fee? I mean, you could have gone to a thousand dollars a month instead of one hundred and fifty dollars a month, mm-hmm. and you'd also be at ten, twelve thousand dollars per per client. Like what, what led you in the it layering the AUM end, and then just saying like the I'm going to do it the AUM end and just make the minimum so I get the the revenue per client minimum that I need. I think because of all the fee models out there, the AUM calculation is sort of the easiest. Okay. Um, And this way I could have one fee model that had one variable and I just set the minimum fee so that I'm making sure to get paid enough. And then if they happen to have a lot of assets, I get paid a little more. Um, But it's the world's simplest math calculation. Okay. So... uh... And so it sounds like the overall thrust and journey of, of fees for you has has just been uh so it's like I, I just keep raising the fee and or the minimum until eventually I got to an equilibrium point where I really feel like I'm getting paid for the amount of work that I'm doing. Yes, exactly. And you know, determining how much how much I'm worth, how much this work is worth during a year, I had no clue when I first started out. That's something I really needed time and experience and practice and a business coach from the industry <laughs> to to help me sort of figure out a number I felt was uh, appropriate or reasonable. Well, I was going to ask like how you like how that journey was in trying to figure out like how much it's how much it's worth like what what should you raise the number to and mm-hmm. when are you at the right threshold like what what was that journey like for you oh it was basically just incremental i think i converted from the separate financial planning and investment management fees to a single fee that covered everything i think i converted to that fairly early and then i just had you know a $6000 a year minimum. And then it was a $7,000 a year minimum. That was eight. And then my business coach at some point said, Meg, the work you're doing for people is really worth at least $10,000 a year. And I was like, really? Oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. Okay, I'll try it out. Uh, and and, and I, then nobody said no. Exactly. Well, it reminds me of the first time I did my biggest fee increase. I mean, this was probably in year, that was two years in or something. And I was talking to Scott Frank and, and Will Kaplan again. Um, and they were, you know, a year ahead of me or something in terms of their businesses. And they said, Meg, look, just raise your minimum fee to $5,000. I guarantee you, not only will your prospect funnel not dry up, you will get more prospects. I was like, all right, man, I don't know. That's, that's crazy. But like, you know, I closed my eyes and sort of trusted them and jumped and they were absolutely right. So because, uh, uh, in that, why, the, the, <laughs> why, well, because there are always going to be people out there, potential consumers, clients, who are the right fit for your fee model, no matter what your or fee level, no matter what your fee level is. Um, so pe- people who for whom $5,000 was an appropriate fee started coming to me as opposed to people for whom $3,000 is an appropriate fee. And now people mm. for whom $10,000 is an appropriate fee approach me. It's an interesting way to, to frame it. So you know, for anyone who's thinking like if I... Uh, you know, if I start charging $5,000, so $3,000, I don't know if the prospects I'm talking to are going to be able to afford it. The answer may be, yeah, they probably won't. 
but you're not going to attract $5,000 minimum clients when you're advertising three. If you want to talk to people that have $5,000 problems, tell them you have $5,000 solutions. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I mean, not that this is a surprise to anyone, but price is a signal. Um, Say you charge $10,000 and people are just going to think like, wow, she's got it going on. That must be worth something. So you had also said like you've got this focus of uh, women in early mid-career in the tech industry, particularly mm-hmm. pre-IPO. So did did that also evolve as as fees evolved and the rest of this moved? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every, everything so, in my business has evolved. Uh-huh. So, where, so where did that start? <laughs> yes. So it started – I the – the cool the, the XYPN Kool-Aid that I drank the hardest when I joined, again, because I joined, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm not, I don't feel the entrepreneurial spirit in general. I'm a financial planner who has sort of been driven to opening up her own firm because that's the only way that she can practice financial planning the way she wants to. Um, but the one drum you guys beat so hard from the beginning was pick a niche. So I picked a niche and I went through, I think, Kristen Harrod's workbook at the time. I think I even wrote a blog post for your blog years ago um, about niching from the beginning. Um, So she had a workbook that I just worked through and it came out with a completely unsurprising result, which was, you know, my previous career was in tech. I am a working mother. (laughs) So put the two together. My, My initial niche market was working mothers in tech. Um, six months in, I had attracted some clients and not a one of them, nor any prospective clients were a working mother in tech. They were women in tech. Um, and you know, I'm not sure had I just persisted, I would have found some momentum at some point. Okay. But the way I was thinking was, okay, like the women in tech thing, like that's a thing. There's even a hashtag for it, for goodness sakes. It's a shared identity out there. Um, And working mothers is a thing, but I'm not sure there's a shared identity of working mothers in tech. And that's one of the things that makes Mm. a niche market really powerful is if they think of themselves as that shared identity. So I initially just backed off the working mothers part and just did women in tech um, and then drilled down a little harder into the early to mid career because I did not want to focus on uh, retirement planning. Um, and then probably in the last two, two years, started talking more about with a specialty in IPO and pre-IPO planning, because we just gathered so much, earned so much of that expertise doing doing work with clients going through IPOs. So so I'm struck by how you frame that, that you're, you're, if you're picking a, a, a niche, like it has to be something that people form some shared identity around for mm-hmm. which like, Working mothers is a thing and women in tech is a thing, but working women mothers in tech might not be. That just doesn't happen to be a version of it that is coming around, or at least that people have like naturally organized themselves around a hashtag for. Yeah. <laughs> so you 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 picked the you you picked the one that they're showing up for, which I mean I think is a a notable thing, even just in the broader niching context. Like one of the aspects that makes like that that helps to define good niches that work is uh, that they, like they have some place where they show up. Like yes. there's a place that you can find them because, mm-hmm. well, otherwise you're at best, your only other choice is to create some kind of community and hope that you can attract them to you uh, and like make the place that they, that they gather. But 
you know, professions work because they have professional associations. You just go to the professional association meeting and like, you know, where to, where to find the people, uh, you know, women in tech, as you noted, like it's got a hashtag. So mm -hmm. just like there, there's, there's places that the group shows up, which means if I want to get going in the niche, I just, I just have to go to where the people already are. I don't have to in, in like reinvent the wheel on this. Yeah, it was, I mean, maybe partly I'm a genius, but it's also definitely partly luck that I chose that niche market around the same time when sort of the women in tech identity, at least from my perspective, really seemed to be gaining momentum. You know, one of the first organizations or Facebook groups, I'll say, I, I joined was called um, Tech Ladies. When I joined it in 2016, it had 600 people. Today, it has over 50,000. So there was just a, a lucky alignment between my niche focus and that community, that professional social community mm. growing at the same time. Interesting. And so you're you're there and present in the community and kind of an early active participant in the community. And so mm -hmm. lo and behold, as the community grows, there are more people there who are seeing you as a prominent, visible member of the community and the few that have $10,000 problems come and come and talk because you have $10,000 solutions. Right. Although at that point I had much cheaper solutions. Yes. <laughs> $3,000 solutions going to $5,000 solutions. Yes. Uh, and, and I was struck as well. You said like you drilled down further on early mid career because you didn't want to focus on retirement planning. Yep. So what's, what's wrong with retirement planning? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it is, it, it's not like you said like, well, I went after early mid-career because I love early mid-career. Like I went after mid-career because I didn't want to do but, retirement that's planning. That's true. <laughs> but the, the way I frame that might lead you to believe that. Um, so I worked in two RAAs as an employee before I founded my own RAA. Okay. And they were – the way I described them, they were sort of the, the stereotypical of sort of the first wave of – independent fee-only RAAs. You know, the founders had worked in, in you know, trust departments and banks and sold insurance and worked at broker dealers. And they, you know, after a career doing all these sort of uh, other financial services related things, started their RAAs and worked, again, not surprisingly, with people approaching retirement or in retirement who had big investment portfolios and then they charge 1% mm -hmm. AUM and that's how they make their money and that's their target market. And so the exposure I got to retirement planning was in that context where you met with a client once a year. Most of the discussion was about their investment portfolio. Oh, you want to do a retirement plan? Okay, that's sort of a, a separate add-on thing that we only do on occasion. Um, and it was, you know, the 30-page, the you know, money tree printout or something. Um, and... I mean, I think I appreciate it a lot more now that I've been running my own firm for seven years than I did when I was working in those firms. But investments have never interested me. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I, running a firm where investments seem to be central to the value, like at the core of the value proposition, um, didn't interest me. And that was really what I saw that was my oh. exposure to retirement planning. Now, so, since, so for you, like retirement yeah. planning was so investment centric and you're not as into the investment side therefore it wasn't appealing to be in the retirement side right so that was the what pushed me away from retirement planning and then what attracted me to the early and mid career is that's where i was so all these 
things that are going through my head. I wanted to work with clients who are also doing that, getting married and changing careers and having babies and moving and buying homes. That was very attractive. So that pulled me toward the early to mid-career. Okay. Now, I will say that in the seven years I've been running my firm, and especially since I've been taking this RICP coursework, my appreciation for just the breadth and depth of retirement planning has completely changed. Um, yeah, I just wanted to get that out there. So now, so now the concern is just, oh, maybe I just wasn't going as deep or our firm wasn't going into deep and knew all the other things you actually can do in the retirement realm. Yes. I mean, it's not a, it's not a concern. I will just say that I, I just simply have just a much richer appreciation, almost sort of an, an overwhelmed appreciation for the scope of doing retirement planning. And so what's led you in that direction now that like you went to to take the RICP after trying to stay very focused <laughs> in early mid-career? Yeah. Uh, twofold, I would say. One is really just forward-looking, which is, God willing, my clients are going to retire someday, um, that they will you know, age successfully and they will remain my clients. Um, so I need to be able to serve them well. And I don't think that what I know of retirement planning is sufficient to serve them well. Um, and then the second... The second motivation is a much more useful in in the current moment motivation, which is sort of inspired by one of the things I didn't like about retirement planning shops is that 60-year-olds show up in a prospect meeting and the effective message to them is, well, sure hope you've done everything right for the last 30 years, because if you have, we can work for you. But if you haven't, sorry. Um, And so I wanted to get a better sense of well, in order to arrive at that point when you're 60 and you walk into a retirement planner's office, how do I how do I get my clients to a point where they would be the ideal client for a retirement focused planner? Um, and I think understanding what goes on in retirement planning it gives me a target. So I'm, I'm struck by just how like ev- evolutiony. Going to pretend that's a word. Good word. How, no. how evolutiony. <laughs> This this is for you of the fee model shifted and evolved over time, right? Like we we started monthly, then we raised monthly, then we had monthly plus assets, then we just consolidated in the assets, mm-hmm. then we like rejiggered the assets, and then we raised the minimums, then we raised the minimums again, then we raised the minimums again, uh, and like we started out working mothers in tech, and then it's women in tech, and then it's early mid career women in tech, and it's early women early mid career women in tech uh, that are IPO or pre IPO planning that just like these. Mm-hmm these layers keep coming over time. So I, I guess I don't know how to, how to ask this. Like, does that, like, is that comforting for you? Is that like flustering mm-hmm. of, yeah. I wish I could just figure out the thing and get the answer it, but it keeps changing. Or are you like reveling in the journey of figure it out <laughs> as we go? And this is great. Like yeah. we're making progress. Like, how do you think about that? Cause that's a lot of change while you're, while you're building. Yeah. Hmm. I think it has become more of a comfort and less of a frustration over time because the more I see the evolution of every aspect of my business, the more I simply recognize that this this is the essence of running this business because what I'm doing is I am making changes that allow me either to serve my clients better or that allow 
me to have a better experience running the business, you know, either, you know, more money, it's less stressful, I'm doing more of the stuff I like, less of the stuff I don't. Um, So it's actually reassuring that it's reassuring to look back and see all the different instances of flow financial planning. And they were all they're all doing fine. I mean, outside of the first two years, of course, that sucked. Um, But they've all been doing just fine. They just did a little better in the next iteration. So I think it's mostly comforting at this point. And my guiding light, you know, as you know, as you well know, I've, you know, tried different service models, right? I tried surge and now back to annual renewal meetings. My guiding light is something that Carl Richards has said, a story he's told a few times about some colleague of his who ran a very successful business. And I guess Carl asked him, my gosh, Bob, you know, how did you grow such such an impressive business? And Bob said, I was there for my clients when they needed me. And that I just imprinted on that sentiment. So I can make all of these changes to the fee model, the service model, technology, deliverables, whatever. But as long as I am keeping that central to how I run my business, um, that's that's the only guiding light I need. That's the only through line I need. So is it really... It- is it a distraction or a challenge that, I mean, I'm struck that is you kind of framed like the business has evolved with these sort of layers over time. And mm. I'm almost envisioning like, like the rings of a tree that like form as the layers as mm. the tree ages. Uh, but you've got all these clients, like you have all these clients from it's like di- different instances of the business. I can almost envision a, a time stamping of like, oh, yeah, my 2007 client, 2017 clients, like, yeah, good year. And like, oh, my 2019 clients, yeah, I was a little different then. Like they came for a different thing because, yeah. uh, you know, I was I was more early career then. So they kind of show up differently than my 2017 clients. Is, is there a, I guess I'm wondering, like, does that present a, 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 a distraction or a challenge that you kind of have these like cohort effects of different clients, sure. depending on what year they happen to come to you as you were going through this journey? Hmm. To an extent, yes. I mean, I've certainly we have, let's say we have 60 clients now. Um, I have certainly had cumulatively way more than 60 clients. Hmm. Uh, so clients have come and gone, especially in the first two years where it was a like, hey, here's my stated niche. But if you will pay me money, I will take you on as a client. That was the most sort of egregious example. Um, but even you know later on where my niche simply narrowed um, and clients were no longer um, sort of as, as good a fit for sort of the, the new narrower focus, clients have left, sure. Sometimes I've suggested that they leave, um, and sometimes they have identified that they're really not a good fit anymore, and they have chosen to leave themselves. Um, yeah, but that's—I mean, clients leaving is always stressful and emotionally difficult and scary sometimes. Um, but so, I, what happened yeah. with those like early non-niche clients when you're in the like, I'll take anybody who will pay me fees because I'm just trying to get the revenue up to a certain yeah. level? Like, d- did. I Did you up, have to go, yeah, let let, them go, go and let those go? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the ones who are, are definitely not in my niche, I just I just let them all go. So talk to us more about that. Like, they, uh, like why, why let them go? Like, why not hold on to the revenue after all the work it took to get them in the first place? Gosh, who are you, Socrates? I know you know the answer to this. Um, <laughs> uh, because there is an efficiency 
there's a vast efficiency to working with cookie cutter clients. Now, I'm not saying my clients are cookie cutter, but I can really demographically, at least, get them very similar to one another so that I only have to understand sort of a a pretty small fraction of the whole world of financial planning in order to really serve them well. But if I have these other clients who are, you know, closer to retirement or an entirely different industry, then I have to go struggle through learning this entire new domain of knowledge to serve this one client. It's incredibly inefficient. Yeah, I I just... Well, I, re- I remember a version of this discussion that that we actually had years ago, and like it was after one of the big tax laws oh, had yeah. come out, like tax cuts and jobs act or something. <laughs> yes, and we did, as we always do, one of our like ten thousand words on like every possible provision of the tax law because we read the whole legislation and find it. And you had sent me some message that was it was something the effect of like. That was great. I found the two sections that were really helpful for my clients. And I'm so glad that I didn't have to read the other 95% of your article because it just didn't matter for my clients. Like I just, I work with these and like, it was mostly retirement things that I don't really do. So like I read the two sections that mattered and I'm so glad I didn't have to read the rest. And it just kind of stuck with like, yeah, yeah, I guess that is kind of the perk when you're really clear of who you're going after. Like you can literally just ignore the other stuff that like truly isn't pertinent to your clients yeah, and just stay really deep on the things that do matter to them. Yeah. It's really freeing. I think people still tend to think of niche as mostly a marketing tool and it's just so much bigger than that. It just, it's got fingers into every aspect of how you run your business. But I guess I just, I am still wondering the mental, like the mental journey from I like, I need revenue. I'll take anyone Mm -hmm. I can get to, uh, I really don't want their revenue in mm-hmm, anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, like when does that crossover point come? Mm. Right. So, I mean, when did it come for you? Like, when did you get to the point of saying, I think I just got to let them go. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, this was enough years ago that I don't have a great memory of it, but I think it's once I was making enough money from the business. So probably mm. in year three or just after year three, where I certainly wasn't making a lot, um, but I was sort of making enough and also was optimistic about sort of the trajectory and the momentum in the business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, every planner feels this way when you're sort of dreading interacting with the client, not because they're jerks or anything, but just because like there's just not a fit there for whatever reason. Right. Um, but I, and I felt safe enough to sort of buy myself the ease of not serving those ill-fit clients anymore. What I hear from a lot of advisors is that a lot of us attach this sort of loyalty significance to those early clients. Like, yo, Mm. you took a chance on me when like, I didn't know that much. You took a (laughs) chance on me early on or like, Mm -hmm. you know, I knew my thing because I had experience, but you know, who knew if my firm was going to survive? There's this like, you know, you took the chance on me. I'm obligated to be loyal to you. How do you process that early client loyalty thing? Maybe deep down, I'm just a sociopath. I don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think, I mean, I really do think it it was because I got so much clearer on my niche and on the business I was building to serve this niche. And it just became so clear. This piece doesn't fit anymore. Mm. Sort of for, for any definition of this piece, like, 
this client doesn't fit anymore. This deliverable doesn't fit. This service model doesn't fit. But with clients, it was really like, look, I'm growing in this direction and, and learning all sorts of awesome ways to serve clients in this direction. I'm not going to be able to serve you well anymore. And so it wasn't a, you know, hey, thanks for your money. See you later, sucker. It was a, like, I don't think you're going to get value for the money by working with me because I'm not developing my skills to serve someone like you. I, I don't think that this is going to work. I, I know a lot of financial advisors. I you know, can almost certainly find someone who's a really good fit for who you are and what your needs are. Would you like me to pro, you know, provide you with some introductions? And then if they said yes, then I would provide them with some introductions. Do you then regret that you had to go through the process of like taking them on just to let them go? Mm. I guess like two two years later. I mean, it like it's not a it's not like you took them on early and then like ten years later, like ah, I don't know this is yeah. a fit. Like it was not a huge number of years that they were on that yeah. journey with you. Exactly. Do I regret taking them on? I don't think so. I just I couldn't have. I, I don't know how I could have done years one and two any better. Mm. I mean, not that I did them well, but uh, <laughs> it's I awful for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> I. I, I didn't know what I was doing and and I have just learned so many times in so many different circumstances in running this business that I simply have to go through the experience to actually understand it. I mean, I I seek people's advice all the time about all aspects of this business. And sometimes it's really helpful to get their advice and it does shape the decisions I make. And sometimes I simply have to go suffer through it for some definition of it and then look back and say, oh, that's what they were talking about. All right. Well, I won't do that dumb thing again. Um, so, no, I don't re- I don't regret taking them on. I also didn't create for myself this like huge load of sort right. of uh, what they call legacy clients or something. These people, I don't know if that's the right word, but this huge load of people who are just a poor fit. And I got rid of them pretty quickly. Um, so from, you know, year three on, I was pretty, you know, maybe after year three or something, my, my client base was very high percentage in my niche. So can you give us some context of, I'm just like the, the pace that it grew at in the, in the first few years? Um, I don't know if you, you remember, but like what the clients or revenue was like, I mean, just like how, how did that ramp up come for you? Yeah, I don't remember the number of clients except for the first year. <laughs> the first year, right? So I make this business plan before launch, having never written a business plan before and just being like, all right, I'll, I'll fill in these parts of the template. And remember, you know, doing it, have my husband, you know, watch me as I'm doing it. And I set a goal of five clients in the first year. Um, and then I ended up getting seven clients in the first year and still felt like a complete failure. Um, so Come on, you beat your goal by 40%. <laughs> Celebrate your wins, Meg. I, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but I do remember revenue very clearly. $17,000 of revenue in year one and $17,000 of expenses in year one. So $0 take home. Um, revenue was $25,000 in the second year. Was it that? No, it was, the revenue was $50,000 in the second year and I think $150,000 in the third year. So at least at that point, I'm sort of thinking about the XYPN um, uh, benchmarks, benchmarking surveys. Yep. 
So like back then, getting to $150,000 in the third year was actually like that was definitely above average. Yep. Um, I th- I think that has become less impressive in recent years as people have launched their firms sort of more quickly slash successfully. Um, but I really attributed that that jump. I mean, I tripled my income from year two, tripled my revenue, excuse me, from year two to year three to my to my niche. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that my niche, so year three would have been um, 2019, and I'm working with women in the tech industry. Tech industry is going gonzo. Um, and the fact that I had been so, so clearly and consistently focused on that niche market, putting out um, content marketing relevant to that niche market so consistently um, that I've really attracted a lot of clients in that third year. Interesting. Interesting. So just that, like, it took three years for the niche to actually gain momentum. Yes. And I I feel as if I am just... um, going to read off all the benchmark study results because I'm pretty sure that's what that shows that uh, it takes three years for sort of the to know like and trust someone or something like that yeah yeah I, we um I've seen that I figured I've seen that across a lot of different businesses built over the over the years that there's just this like the first year you show up and be just there I mean the truth is like anybody you know, who even might work with you someday, like they're just trying to figure out whether you're actually going to stick. Like, yeah. are you really going to stick around? Is this just, is this just a thing? Like, is it going to flare out? Like, I, I don't know. Like you got to get a little further in. Uh, then by the second year, like a few people in the personal circle start showing up. It's like, all right, you like stuck around for a year. Like, it seems you're sort of in this now. I'll, 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 I'll work with you. And like, you're getting to know other people in a network, but you're mostly still just showing up for them for the mm-hmm. first time. So like mm-hmm. they're kind of getting to know you and maybe they like you, but they're not really at the trustee phase yet. Yeah. And then you get to the third year and people are like, all right, you've been around for a while. You've been showing up for a while. Like seems pretty trustworthy. I guys seem from a distance. Like you're doing this. You seem to have more clients than you did before. Like, okay, like I'm, I'm there now. Let's, let's talk. And then a whole bunch of them show up in year three. Cause like they've been watching you since yeah. year one. So like, like they didn't notice you. It just took a while for them to show up. And so I, for a huge number of advisors that I know, it's incredibly common that you get more growth in year three than the first two years cumulatively, oh, yeah. which is freaking infuriating. <laughs> you're like, where were, where were you people in the past two years while I was right. suffering? It's logging through it. And you're just like, it just takes a while for people to get to the point to trust. Yeah. And there's only so much you can do to speed that up. Yeah. And I think honestly, the hardest part of it is not that you're not making the income in the first two years, is that you're not sure this is going to work. So should you're putting in so much time. (laughs) And I mean, right. Like just like, it's great to get seven clients in the, in the, in the first year. I mean, that really is like a a strong outing out of the gate when starting from, from scratch, Mm -hmm. but you're like, you're working 40 hours a week <laughs> for my $17,000. Like yeah. And like seven clients for the year. So like, that's cool. That means like some, you know, almost half the months, there wasn't one all month. Yep. Like it's a lot of hours to have no new clients to show for. Like it's just brutally depressing early on. And then eventually like, it starts gaining momentum. Yeah. I remember one of the milestones in the growth of my business was, I think it was month 10. I got a prospect call request from someone whom I had no connection to. And I was like, Oh, 
it goes. That's, you know, I sowed a lot of seeds. I just got one of them sprouting. Uh, That was very exciting for me. First stranger prospect. Yes. So, uh, so when did it get to the point that you started expanding team and it went beyond you? Yeah. Uh, two and a half years in, I think, uh, I just, (laughs) I just wanted some help. I mean, I literally put the job description was Jack or Jill of all trades because I just, I couldn't even define specifically what I wanted help with. I was like, Hey, can you just come spend some hours with me and then do whatever I ask you to do? Um, and, and so I got a, a lovely woman who was in fact herself still working in tech, but making a gradual transition or wanting to make a gradual transition in financial planning. So she just worked as a contractor for me. Um, and working with her helped me, organize, better organize sort of the the kind of tasks that I do, the kind of work that I do. So that about six months later, I was able to hire a dedicated admin person because by then Sarah, the name of the, the contractor had helped me sort of define, well, there are all these administrative tasks that you could simply hire an admin for. Oh, interesting. So the, like the, the process of just trying to figure out and package like okay i've got sarah what can i give her i can give her this oh uh, mm-hmm. okay i found like this to give her i all right yes. i found this and then you find enough things and you're like wow if i actually make a list of those like that's a job description like that's an actual job description besides like jack or jill of all trades oh my god follow me for more business tips yes that is <laughs> so what it, what so what were some of the other like milestones for you as you think about growth and evolution of the of the business mm. So yeah, uh, so month 10, right? That first stranger who reached out to me indicating that my my sort of my content marketing was working. Um, sometime in the next six months, I actually paid myself enough to pay my mortgage. That was very exciting. Um, and hiring people certainly was a milestone. I think when I hired Janice, who's her operations admin person, when she became full-time, and that was in basically year three and a half years in, I think she became full-time, I want to say. So was was she the like, you started with Sarah as a contractor and then went to Janice full-time? Yep. Yep. Um, And then, you know, by then my, the the sort of the the flywheel of my marketing had, had developed momentum. Uh, And so I was getting more, more prospects than I could, more people interested in working with me than I could reasonably take on. Um, right. If I, I never thought that I could start with more than three, three new clients a month, two is a much better number. Um, and I had more than that one to come in. So I was like, all right, I need an associate planner. So, you know, Sarah has been great, but she, you know, she's very much part-time. Uh, and so that's three, I think three years in is when I hired Maddie full-time as my, as a like, dedicated associate planner with like an actual job description that sounded like a, like an associate planner. Um, so that was a milestone. And then we grew and then February of last year, um, we hired Yaram as um, another associate planner so that Maddie could move up to lead planner. And now we're getting into my God, 2022 sucked. Um, 2022 sucked because the stock market went down, the IPO market dried up, the tech market collapsed. Um, So my prospect funnel basically dried up at the very same time that I had just gone from a three-person team to a four-person team 
incurred all the expenses of growing a team. Um, and then growing a team is a lot of work. And I would probably be better at it now that I've done it once, but it was the first time I was really doing it. And um, I'm transitioning very seamlessly from milestones into why last year suck. Yeah, why last year sucked. No, that's, yeah. Okay. So tell us more. Yes. Like why did why did last year suck? Or I guess it's even where 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 was the business? I guess just maybe reset us a little. Like yeah. where was the business heading into into 2022 from like clients or revenue or team? Like just give yes. us give us context for it. So heading into 2022. Gosh, we're probably around five hundred and fifty thousand of revenue, five to five fifty. Okay. Um, probably around fifty clients, and it was a team of three: me, Maddie, who's an associate, Janice, who's operations, and I was the only lead planner. Um, and the idea was for Maddie to move up to lead because I was like, "Hey, I'm, we, you know, we still have all these prospects." Let's grow the firm. And in retrospect, I realized that I was being driven by these external forces. Like there's a demand for our services. Therefore, we should have a supply of our services. Um, and also, that's just what you do in this business. You grow, right? Um, so we promoted Maddie to lead planner. And we sort of backfilled her spot by hiring Yaram as an associate. Um, and the idea was like, I've seen the Angie Herbers sort of growth chart a thousand times where your profitability totally takes a hit every time you reach one of these, I forget what she calls them, but sort of profit thresholds or something like mm -hmm. that. You know, you hire a new person and obviously like, your expenses go way up. Um, but the idea was, okay, well, I take on this, this new employee. I take on these extra expenses. Profit takes a hit for a while, but then obviously we grow the revenue because now we've doubled the lead planner capacity. Right. Um, and then that didn't happen. And that didn't happen for a variety of reasons, you know, in large part because the prospect funnel, by the time I got around to like opening back up to new clients, like the markets, all the relevant markets had, had crapped. Um, and that scared the bejesus out of me because I think that was the first time since, you know, month 10 that I hadn't had a steady stream of prospects. And it was at the very moment that I most desperately needed them. Because you're feeling all the all the overhead pressure of oh my God. having yes. having put a new person having put a new person in. My profit and loss statement was not pretty. Um, I, what I lost was a lot of spaciousness. That is a word that's really come to be very sort of central to what I'm trying to build into the business is I, I want there to be a sense of spaciousness, like both financially um, and also in how I show up in the business and, you know, how I spend my days. Um, so can you talk yeah. about that more? Like just, I mm -hmm. guess both financially and business end, like just what does spaciousness sort of mean and show up and, and how was it, how was the spaciousness gone when yeah. you, when you added someone, so I feel like for a lot of firms, like you know, four person teams are like you're you're there. Like you've got a lead planner you can hand folks off to. You've got an associate planner who support them. You've got an operations person. Yeah. Like that's supposed to be all the people where you can start letting stuff go and your time comes back. And like that's supposed yeah. to create the spaciousness, at least in working theory. Yes. So like that seems to have gone very opposite for you. So I'm just trying to understand like mm -hmm. where. 
what made that not spacious? Because the you know the standard line is you hire so you can delegate and create more space for yourself. Right. So let me just start off by saying other people might have been doing might have been able to do it well, and I just <laughs> did it poorly. Like. <laughs> Everyone's got their special skills, and maybe mine is simply not growing teams. Um, so part of the spaciousness went away because now there was a lot of training. There was this new associate planner, and Yerim is fantastic and smart and diligent and um, always looking to grow, but she was also really new to the profession. And so there's just time spent bringing her up to speed on things. Um, and then also Maddie, who transitioned from associate to lead... That's a bigger change than I appreciated because it's not an evolution that I went through personally, right? The day I launched my firm, I became the lead planner mm-hmm. <laughs> by, by definition. Um, and, and so I don't think I did a particularly good job of creating a, a, an easy path for that development to take place. Um, so I felt... Um, just being very, from a selfish perspective, I felt a lot of pressure to help facilitate that growth. <clears throat> like, oh my gosh, what, is, what does she need? What does she not have yet? Um, and so I just felt all of my energy was being used, or so much of my energy was being used <clears throat> to grow these people in my firm. And then I had this really sort of pivotal experience at the end of the year, and December 2022. I went back down to the Bay Area. I hadn't been there in three years because of COVID. Um, I used to go there you know, once a year to, to visit family, but also to see clients. Well, I sort of lost track of the fact that I had a lot more clients in the Bay Area in 2022 than I had had in 2019. Hmm. So I ended up scheduling conversations with 15 clients over two and a half days. Um, and when I realized what I'd done, I looked at my calendar and sort of hyperventilated a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and these weren't financial planning meetings. These were just like life conversations, you know, at sure. the local but, you know, like, There's one thing like, oh, it's great to be in town and catch up with friends until you're like, I'm in town catching with friends six a day. Six a day, right, right, right. <laughs> For two and a half days. Yes, yes. Um, and then it, I felt like I was, I was physically tired at the end of the day, at the end of the two and a half days, but I felt invigorated. It mm. really sort of was... It, it, it filled me up in a way that I hadn't had in a while. And I, that sort of sat in my unconscious for a while until I realized, oh, that is in fact what I want to be spending my time doing. That's what energizes me. That's what I like about this job. I, I am a financial planner who owns a business. I am not a business owner who practices financial planning. Um, and so all of the difficulties of... 2022, at least the one specific to growing a team, I realized, oh, I started creating it. I started growing a business that doesn't serve me. Like maybe eventually Mm -hmm. I could have turned it into more money. I don't know. But I was creating, I was taking myself away from work that I liked and giving myself work that I didn't like. Um, But it took me months. I mean, almost a full year, I would say, of sort of suffering through this disconnect and not understanding why it was so damn hard, why why I was so stressed out all the time. Like mm. other people do this. What is wrong with me? Um, and then I was actually sitting in a therapy appointment, I think, in January of this year, and talking about that trip down to the Bay Area. 
when it was just like this light bulb moment of, oh, that's what excite, that's what excite me. That is what excites me. And I have taken that away from myself. So then what happens next? Like, yeah. cool realization, but you have, <laughs> but you have three employees yes, yeah, yeah. who, you're, who yeah. you have to make payroll on while growth has been lousy. Yes. And you've realized you don't even actually want to have them all, maybe after all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what happens is one of the most unpleasant experiences I've ever been through, but I, I am reassured that it is something that all business owners or at least employers go through is I, I laid a team member off. Um, and it was not a commentary on their performance. It was a commentary on this is not the business shape I want. And, you know, it's, it's my business. I'm going to, now that I've made this realization, I need to create this business to serve me. Um, but in order to serve me, I had to, ugh, Oh, I get stressed out just talking about it. Um, I had to, uh, I had to lay someone off. Yeah. So it's got to be tough when it's not, the irony to me is it's almost easier when it's a performance problem. Yeah. It's like you're doing a bad job. It's harming the business and clients don't like it. It's like we need to, we need to let you go uh, for like the sake of the business yeah. and the clients. It's, it's different when it's like, yeah, I just realized that I'm not liking the direction of the business. And if we go another direction, that means there isn't a seat for you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I talked to so, so many, I talked to my business coach. I talked to a mentor of mine. I, hell, I emailed with you about like, ah, um, because it just felt like this monumental thing. And, and, you know, kind of is you're toying with someone's livelihood. Um, and I really, really wish that I had made different decisions that I didn't have to go through that. I didn't have to put someone else through that. Um, but I made mistakes along the way. And this is, this was the way I figured out how to rectify them. So how do you like, how do you get there and get comfortable with that's what has to be done? Cause can mm -hmm. like, I, I know, I like, <laughs> I know advisors who have gotten to that position, like that person still works there at the firm. <laughs> and like they're, they're, you know, the, the owner's pretty miserable. But like, I, I can't, I can't let them go. Like I can't quote, I can't do that. Yeah. Or I can't do that to them. And yeah. like they, they put themselves in a place of being not very happy and either dealing with it or maybe like hoping and praying that maybe if this thing grows enough, eventually it'll yeah. get better again. Uh, like how, yep. just, how did you get there and get comfortable with the conclusion? Like, I'm going to have to actually do this and let them go. Yeah. Uh, I think the first, the, the first really big clue that this might be the right decision was again in, in therapy. I started working with a personal therapist like in December because 2022 had been so stressful and I didn't know how to handle my stress. Um, and in a January session, I, it, it came up maybe, I don't know if the, therapist proposed it or I did just the notion of like, well, what if, what if we let her go? What if we lay her off? And I took a moment to actually think about the implications. What, what would the business look like if I did that? And I just started crying and it was like, it, it, it instantly tapped into something really emotional. And I, Thankfully, had the 
sort of wherewithal to think, oh, Meg, that's that's important. You should pay attention to that. Um, the, like, we, I just want to make sure and say, like the yeah. crying, like that, like it hit you the thought of laying someone off, or it hit you the like the thought of what the business would look like afterwards yeah. if you'd done it, and was like, oh wait, like why am I so like why am I feeling so different about what that yeah. business would look yeah. like? Yeah, sorry, I'll make that clear. The thought of how much relief it would be. <sighs> If I could do, if I did this and went back to a three-person team, um, that was the idea had sort of skated around in my unconscious for a while, and I just, I just shoved it back. I was like, nope, nope, not, not a choice. Um, and then that one sort of innocent question in, in my therapy session, and it just came roaring to the forefront and and lodged itself there, um, and. You know, I spoke with my business coach and, you know, um, and also thought about, you know, I went through the Kinder Institute registered life planner stuff. And so I'm sort of a, you know, I'm a life planning oriented planner. And so I have this lens on the work I do, you know, with my clients, mm. but also try to bring it to my own life, which is what is the life I am trying to build? It sure as hell is not being stressed out all the time and not being able to bring like mm. my energy and attention to my children. Um, and I really felt as if the stress over my work were detracting from my my real presence in my family. Um, and so it was a pretty quick, like after that therapy session, it was, I don't know what's uphill or downhill from there, but that was, that was the point at which the, the, the switch flipped for me. And, uh, and then what, like what happened next? Like just how mm -hmm. do you go about this? Uh, yes. So if you're me, you talk to your business coach, uh, who tells you to, among other things, run some numbers. Um, you know, what, what would happen if you did this? What would happen if you didn't do this? Um, and, and who also, you know, my business coach is, she sort of brings a, a life planning equivalent to her work. So she's also, I mean, we've been working together for six years. She's also very attuned to, she knows a lot about what I want in this life and what what's important to me. So she was able to sort of help me keep looking at things through that lens. I also reached out to JD Bruce, for example, just like, hey, you know, at Abacus, I know you know who he is, but um <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of doing this. Uh, I know I know you've been through it before because you seem to have done everything in this business. So, what are your thoughts around this? Um, I, you know, talked talked and emailed with other other people who had done this, um, or or even like friends and colleagues who hadn't done it, but who could just be emotional support. Um, and I think I just needed to say it. I need to talk about it out loud. I sort of do my mm -hmm. best thinking outside of my own head. Um, and just the more I talked about it, the more certain I became. And it's not because I could trace it back to some sort of objective calculation. Um, it just felt right. And I think part of my training with the Kinder Institute is has helped me really pay attention to just what it feels like to follow the emotion, right? If there is really big tangible emotion around this thing, you need to go there because that's actually what's going to give you the energy to do hard things. 
And so when you had to get to the point of having the, the, the conversation when, mm-hmm. so like you had not been through the process of Oof. having to terminate someone before. Yeah. So like, what was the, what was the preparation going into that conversation and how did you approach it? Yeah. Well, I hired an employment attorney, um, mm-hmm. both for obviously sort of legal reasons, because this is a sort of a highly legally fraught thing to do. Um, and also for best practices, right? You know, the employment attorney I hired has helped lots of people, lots of employers lay people off. She's laid people off herself. And so she could give me best practices about what to say in the meeting, what the what the employee is going to be thinking and feeling, right? One of the interesting pieces of advice she gave me is like, look, get to the point immediately. And then basically don't answer any questions. Because as soon as you tell someone that they've been laid off, um, they're not going to hear anything else. Well, because they're not going to remember anything mm-hmm. else from the conversation. It is not a favor to them to go into great detail in that call. You can have a call later if they want to. Um, so that it, I just got mm-hmm. sort of tips from the employment attorney around that. Any, um, any other big tips that mm, stuck with you in that context? Like that's a pretty yeah, powerful one. Yeah. <laughs> the other one I really remember is look, I understand you feel a compulsion to care for this person, to take care of them, to want to ease their suffering, right? Because that's that's what we all want as, as humans. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can't do that for this person. You are causing the suffering. <laughs> so, you know, all the things you might want to do, like, oh, I'm so sorry, or like, let me give you all this explanation or, you know, whatever sort of dithering you might be tempted to do, it's not a service to that person to do that. It is a service to that person ultimately to make it clear and clean and respectful. And how did you find this wonderful attorney with helpful advice? Oh, yeah. Uh, I asked my estate planning attorney for recommendation. Then I asked a, a local friend and colleague, and they both recommended the same person. Okay. And then... Um, uh, as you got to the conversation itself, I mean, did did it take the direction that you had uh, that you had said earlier of like this is not a commentary on your on your performance? The business is not taking the shape that I want, yeah. and I just need to go another direction. And that means you don't have a role here. Like, is that how you actually served up that conversation? Yes, because I wrote that sucker out. This was this. Oh, was... you scripted you scripted it for yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, this was not a conversation I wanted to ad lib. Um, yeah, so that that's in so many words what so I said. Right? It was. Is this in is this in person or is this virtual for you? No, we're, like we're just, all is, virtual. So this was okay. this was over so, Zoom. So I guess the irony that you that you literally can script this, like you you can put this on the screen. Oh yeah, as I, you're, as you're talking, right? Like you can't quite do that in person. <laughs> like I can't hold the piece of paper up in front of us, so I'm. Uh, 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 seeing it as we're talking, but like, I guess w- weird reality in a, in a zoom virtual context, like I actually can sort of keep this as notes and script in front of me to just stay focused on what this conversation needs to be. Yes. And, you know, normally in, you know, zoom calls with clients or whoever I sort of pride myself on being comfortable and casual and, you know, r- real, you know, not, not scripted. And I just abandoned any attachment to being natural and like th- this meeting, this conversation is too important. This needs to go exactly 
as I planned it. Um, mm. So, you know, I'm pretty sure it was obvious I was reading a script, even if it was on Zoom. So how does it feel now? It, it had the desired effect on the business. I really do feel way more spaciousness. Um, it was definitely a, a transition that's not finished yet. Um, but, you know, all of a sudden, we, you know, one, one day we're a firm that needs to acquire 40 new clients in order to sort of fill up, fill up two lead planners to a firm that's like, oh, we don't really need any more clients at all. Like, I, I can mm. be done now if I wanted to be. Um, and so what goes away? What goes away is the really the need to prospect. I mean, I still enjoy all the marketing stuff I do. So I still get prospects, but there's much less attachment to them, you know, to, to, you know, converting them into clients. Because um, you, because you're not looking at this from the, it's no longer the pressure of, yeah, I'm basically getting killed on the salary for this new advisor until I get clients, new clients and revenue up to the point that's covering them. And yep. then this gets profitable again. So all this like, go get more business, go get more business. Like you got to dig out of this hole. You dug yourself by hiring the person and just that, that vanishes when the, when the person's not in the picture yes. anymore. Right. Right. So the, yeah, the pressure off of the revenue, it pr- took the pressure off the revenue because the expenses went down a lot. Um, and now more of my time is just around client interactions which is my favorite part of the job. <laughs> um, so what about just, I, I mean, I guess I, yeah. you were in the first year of this in the, in the first place so, and, and growth had slowed down. So I'm presuming only so many clients had transitioned, but like how many clients boomerangs back to you in this process? I think it was 22. Like a lot of, lot of meetings and clients to suddenly show up on your calendar again. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes, and um, all but three of these clients had been my clients before. So um, okay, so they just uh, came so, back so to you. The, the I know this relationship. Yes. I know these dynamics. Right. So there's I don't have to of, build a relationship from scratch. Exactly. I might need to get up to speed on sort of developments in the last year or something. But there's sort of an established relationship, and three of the clients I had never worked with. So those were sort of my my higher priority in terms of okay. making sure the relationship felt tended to. So I'm, I'm struck by this in part that, I mean, a lot of what you had shared was just over this journey is, is kind of the, the evolutionary nature. Like my fees are here and then they're here and then they're here and then they're here and then they're here. And like, I'm serving these clients, but then it's this version, it's this version, it's this version. It's like, you know, the, it, it iterates a, you, I thought you had said it, uh, well or earlier that just there's this effect that the clarity comes over time like Mm -hmm. you have to do some of the things in various ways to find the clarity uh you know a lot of what you had talked about earlier were sort of like the the positive clarities like my fees kept moving up and my niche kept getting nichier and and the marketing flywheel kept growing this i'm sort of struck was like you know the 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 version of the evolution that didn't work out well, right? Like I, I added one people and then I had two people and I had three people and I got to four. I was like, okay, (laughs) that didn't work. We're going to take, take a step back. So so I guess I'm wondering just other, other evolutions you tried that didn't work out. (laughs) Cause we always talk about the ones that do, cause that's the ones that like stick around and, and we're still doing like, what are the other evolutions that didn't work out? Yeah, I mean, there have been multiple sort of minor ones over the years. Me, me, and I think the underlying 
the common theme is me trying to solve problems before they're actually a problem. Like, oh, this deliverable would be awesome, or this process would be awesome. And then creating this whole infrastructure around it, um, and then realizing uh, this doesn't actually help the client anymore. Um, so and, like, like what, like, just what did you create that? Oh, I used to have this beautiful written financial plan that my designer helped me with. Um, and it was aesthetically very pleasing. Um, but it was a pain in the ass to update and it, the client seemed to get no special value out of it. So now my plan is, I mean, it's like, you know, quote unquote, one page plan, but it's literally a Google sheet. Um, so you went from like beautifully to graphically designed <laughs> plan to like, here's my Google sheet. Here's my Google sheet. Yep. That's exactly what I did. While, while your fees went from 150 a month to $10,000. Uh, exactly. exactly. Um, and like processes around, like we made a workflow for, for, you know, helping people with IPOs, which was just like super detailed, you know, like 30 different steps and we would just get lost in it or, you know, stuck in it. Um, and, you know, eventually we just realized like, can we just have like, let's replace these 10 steps with, um, have a meeting between the associate planner and lead planner to talk about what comes next or, you know, something like that. Um, but I think the biggest example is what I wrote about for your blog recently, which was an experimentation with surge meetings, um, which, I mean, I learned a lot, so I, I mostly don't regret the experiment. So just walk us through what what you did. Just you know, surge has been out there as a thing lately. I mean, we've had a number of guests on the podcast who who have done the surge approach, who have adopted the surge approach, who have been pretty universally like happy with the surge <laughs> approach. I mean, usually something to the effect of, yeah, it gets pretty intense for that like four to six week period when yep. you're when you're really surging the surgy meetings, but then like you know. And a couple of weeks beforehand with prep and a couple of weeks afterwards when you're done, but then you get like half the year back with almost no client meetings aside from a few ad hoc things. And and almost everyone, it felt like, would essentially say like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit of a grind when you go through it. But like I get all this freedom, almost in your words, like I get all this spaciousness mm-hmm. in the rest of the year and it's so worthwhile. So they've been happy about it. So share with us more like just the surge journey of what didn't work like what you did and what didn't work for you yeah yeah um so i will say obviously the the blog post thanks to your editors has a lot of words dedicated to this far more so than i'll (laughs) get into right now (laughs) absolutely we'll we'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who wants like the uh the the full details and and backstory and and context this this is episode 334 so if you go to kidsis.com slash 334 we'll have Kind of more of the backstory around the, the journey through surge. Sure. Uh, so what didn't work for me? And I want to be careful to say, much like I was saying earlier, you know, uh, having a four-person team didn't work for me in my firm at this time. I don't know how other people do it. Um, mm-hmm. sa- same thing here. Surge did not work for my firm with my clients the way we do financial planning. Um, what didn't work about it? I never got that sense of spaciousness. Like never. Surge meetings would extend, I don't know, probably two months, twice a year. And throughout that two months, we just developed this ever-growing backlog of tasks that came out of the meeting. So as soon as we finished the surge season, as it were, 
then we just have a bajillion tasks to do for clients. Um, and all right, so that was one thing. Just it, we could never through three different iterations, we could never figure out how to fit surge meetings into few enough days, few enough weeks with a consistent enough agenda to get efficiency. Like we were meeting with a ton of people and just having like a completely different conversation with every single one of them with no chance to recover from any of those meetings. So that's one thing that didn't work. Uh, Two, I I never knew when we could take on a new client. I mean, it seems... I was always frustrated. I couldn't figure this out. I was like, all right, if surge lasts for two months in the spring and two months in the fall, and for like the months leading up to surge, we need to do all this prep. And then like the two months following surge, we have a boatload of tasks to do. I've got like August when I can take on a new client. (laughs) It's just like, I just, I couldn't figure it out. Um, And I tried taking on new clients and then sort of before they were done with the initial onboarding, sort of have them be part of the surge process. But I tried that once and it just sort of blew up in my face. The client was like, what even is this? Like, what about all the other stuff you told me we're going to talk about? I was like, yeah, that didn't work. Um, And I think I'll I'll end with, I've mentioned this a couple of times in this meeting, in this interview that I am sort of trained as a life planner and to me, life planning requires time because mm-hmm. sometimes it requires conversations about one thing that you need to explore. And so we would have these quote unquote surge meetings that had this technical agenda and we would spend the entire hour exploring the one topic that the client brought to the meeting and never get to any of our agenda because the one thing they brought, like, should I buy a house? Should I quit my job? That is, in fact, what is most valuable for the client to discuss now, not my agenda. Mm. Um, but then so you the, never get to your agenda. Get, and so we, like, all the prep was wasted and, or how, how do we get this information conveyed to them outside of the meeting? Uh, it, it was just a, a, a problem I could never solve. So how long did you go down this searchy journey before yeah. stepping away? Well, we started in spring of 2021. So we did spring 21, fall 21, spring 22. And then I literally felt pained inside the prospect of doing surge for fall 2022. So we, that's when we ended, we did not do surge meetings in fall 2022. Um, But we had spent as a team, probably 10 months gathering all sorts of information and drafting agendas and workflows and um, for that first spring surge. Uh, so it was probably a two-year journey, at least, all up. Interesting. So as you reflect on this journey over the past seven years, what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? Surprised me the most? Mm. I think the, just the fact that I could do it, that people actually find me credible and are willing to pay me money, and and that I'm like good at this and people listen to me. Um Really, I mean, I, I think a part of that is just, like I said before, I I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I mean, clearly, kind of by definition, I am because I started a business. Um, but oh my goodness, I'm a business owner. I'm an employer. How crazy is that? Both of my parents, like one was a university professor and the other one was a federal government worker. Um, this is sort of not in my family's lifeblood. Yeah, it worked. Crazy. 
So then why did you take the leap when you seem to have had not a lot of confidence that people would find you credible, pay you money, or that you would would or could be an entrepreneur? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds kind of dumb when you put it like that. Um, With like some was driving. <laughs> I wouldn't call it dumb, but like some was driving you to take a leap through all that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, to to first order, I had no idea what it actually involved. And I think if any entrepreneur truly knew what it involved to start their first business, they probably wouldn't do it. Um, but also when I was, I was exploring starting my own or registering my own RAA in the fall of 2015. And at that point, I was mostly a stay-at-home mom. My husband had a full-time job. We were fine financially. But whenever I'd meet someone... Um, and they'd find out I was a financial planner. They'd say, oh, can you can you help me? And I said, well, not for money. I can't uh, because, you know, I had to be registered to get paid for advice. And uh, so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do the bare minimum registration, which is laughable in retrospect, especially in the state of Washington. Um, but uh, so in fall of 2015, I started just doing Internet research about registering as an RIA. And that's when I found the XY Planning Network. And even though it was such a smaller offering seven, eight years ago than it is now, you you know, they put on a they really- did, They did compliance registration, though, so <laughs> they think they, they could solve that problem at least. Yes. And, and also, they, they clearly knew infinitely more about running an RIA than I did. Um, and I just, it was, again, sort of this light bulb moment of, oh- here's someone who can take me by the hand and just tell me what to do, right? Like that's not mm. the attitude of an entrepreneur. They don't want people to tell them what to do. But at that moment I was very much like, look, make all the decisions for me. That's cool. Just tell me, <laughs> tell me what to do. Um, and with, with the assumption that I would have that sort of support, that here's this organization that knows how to start and grow an RAA and they will just tell me how to do that. I don't have to figure it out on my own. With a feeling of that support, I just thought, oh, this this could actually be a thing. And I like financial planning. Like, I really like financial planning. There was just no way for me to do it, really, before that. So it really was discovering XYPN that resulted, that that, that was the key to me starting my own firm. So then what was the low point overall in this journey for you? Uh, I would say there were two. One was about eight months in, you know, when I was still losing money and didn't have any, any sort of sense of attraction or momentum. And I, I just had this week where I just sort of had this nervous breakdown. I canceled whatever meetings I had and just spent the whole week crying. Um, and, you know, sort of cry face telling my husband, like, maybe you should go get another job. I don't know if this will work. Because uh, he'd become a stay-at-home dad when I launched the firm. So we had zero income in the house. Um, and he just said, basically, no, we're fine. You're, you're, this is going to work. Just give it some more. I know it's hard. Just give it some more time. Um, he also set up a call with me with, our thera- with my therapist, which was very <laughs> helpful. Um, uh, and so that was, that was the lowest point for a lot of years. So like, so your, your deal, your structure was, I'm going to go launch a business. So you're going to be stay at home dad with the, with the young kids Mm -hmm. while I'm doing this, I guess it sounds like, cause it sounded like just before that you had been the other way around. 
he was working in, uh, and you were the stay at home parent. Cause that's what was kicking off the friend saying, can you help me? Yep. And you had to say no. Uh, so I guess I'm curious more like how that, you know, like couples exchange comes about and, and how that works, <laughs> uh, just financially, like you, you build up savings and say, if yeah. we have enough, then like you can go do this for a year or two or three or however long it is. And as long as you get to this point, then we're good. And if not, then we got to switch back again and he goes and gets a job like that. Was that the setup? Um, I would say it was much less studied than that. It was more, <laughs> it was more like, Hey, you and I both worked in tech. We got paid a goodly amount of money. We're ahead of, ahead of the game financially. Like if we don't save anything for three years and I just pulled that three years straight out of my butt, I didn't run any numbers. Sure. That'll be fine. I mean, hell, I'm like 40 years old. I've got another, you know, three years go by. It doesn't work. I've got another 20 years of working. Um, so that was the extent of the analytical rigor on the financial front. Um, it's just felt financially secure enough. Like we can, we can do this. We're okay. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out, like we'll still be okay. We have time to make up foregone income yes. and savings and be on track. Exactly. Yep. Uh, I would say the more difficult transition was actually swapping roles as the stay at home parent. And I will, mm. I will just, put a shout out for marriage counseling because <laughs> about four months into him being the stay at home parents, when I was still making doctors and dentists appointment, we're in marriage counseling and I am basically yelling and cursing about how damn long does it take for you to figure out how to do this? Cause it's four months in and I'm still doing these stay at home parent tasks. Um, the marriage counselor helped us through that one. <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm just reflecting on that as I uh, had lunch today thanks to my absolutely amazing stay-at-home wife who literally had two containers for me. The first said lunch with green sauce, and then mm -hmm. the second was a small container that said green sauce. Like, this is... <laughs> Yeah, like if you want me to nerd out on tax law, like I can, you know, I'll go until the cows come home. But like, um, I'm like basically not functional for anything in 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 our house, and I'm so so thankful that she is as amazing as she yes. is. So I'm I'm like channeling a little bit of what your husband went through. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how long it would take me to get up to speed, but like it but would probably be a painfully long time. Yeah, like, she's but, amazing. Yeah. It's not my strength. <laughs> yeah, for anyone else doing this, it took. I would say at least two years for us to feel comfortable with the new equilibrium. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so that was, yeah, we were talking about low points, right? So that sort of yeah. eight months in nervous breakdown, crying all day. Um, and then 2022 and all the struggles that I talked about earlier. Like I was, I was unhappier in my business in 2022 and early 2023 than I had been since, since year two, you know, since the end of year one. So what else do you like, do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from seven, eight years ago as you were launching or thinking about getting ready to launch? Like, what do you know now you wish you had mm. known then? Yeah. Uh, charge more from the beginning because I started at the bottom and it was a long, steep trail up the mountain. Um, and also don't, don't solve problems before they're smacking you in the face. And I think I, you know, sort of talking about this mm. earlier, but there are enough problems that are currently smacking you in the face. You don't need to create more work for yourself 
by trying to anticipate other problems or improvements or whatever. Um, so, yeah. so you got to help me though, Max. Like, how do I reconcile this? Like, I'm a planner. <laughs> I love looking at the future and anticipating problems. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think in practice, you can't avoid doing that to some extent. Um, but I think part of being a planner is looking at what is the current reality of, of how we are running our business. What are the needs of our clients and how are those needs being met or not being met? And really only solve for that. What Where I've gotten in trouble is, mm. oh, the clients would like that. And then creating this whole process to deliver them like a really long tax return review email that n- no one ever read or commented on, right? And so the next iteration, the next year was we still did the same tax return review and then sent them an email that basically said, hey, we looked at your tax return review. Everything looks fine. Good job. So so it sounds like this is really in the context of like, don't don't assume you have a problem with client value that you need to do a whole bunch more things to bolster your client value until they're actually like some people are leaving you or expressing that they don't think you're valuable. Yeah. Or that you can, you can truly see yourself. I mean, there's, there's danger in saying, well, if clients haven't asked me for it, it's not worthwhile providing because part of (laughs) what they're hiring us for is that we know more than they do about what's necessary. Um, So it's, it's a balance. I just found myself, I just found that I I wasted so much time and energy and focus on creating solutions for problems that didn't yet truly exist. Um, yeah. So any other advice you would give younger, like newer advisors thinking about getting started and trying to navigate their way into the profession? Uh, earlier in the profession. Okay. Mm. For me, I, th- I think it comes back to networking always. Mm. That's, you know, g- go to, planners office hours go to local meetings of you know napfa or the fpa uh go to conferences just connect with people because you're never going to know what you don't know until you happen to meet someone who mentions it um and you get connections Mm. that way you learn about opportunities that way and it also just makes the whole professional experience so much more enjoyable when you know more people that you like so as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success, and mm-hmm. you know one of the themes that always comes up the the word success right means very different things to different people, mm-hmm. and so you know you have a business that's in a wonderful place, like financially, objectively, uh, uh, a very successful business, and happier now. <laughs> uh, but like, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, you know, it reminds me a bit. Um, there was an article, uh, in, uh, an article in the New York Times years ago by David Brooks, and I'm going to sort of butcher this, this, the paraphrase of it, but it was about sort of the two mountains that you go through in life, like the mountains of success. In the first half of life, success is defined by all these external trappings, money, you know, professional success, the size of your house, whatever. Um, and then somewhere in the middle of your life, you start coming down that mountain and start going up the next one where you realize that success is in the relationships you have. Um, and I just turned 47. And while the age of, while well, turning 40 was just like a nothing burger for me, being in my upper 40s has, I have felt that I am older. And I actually mean that as a very good thing because I have felt my 
my lens on my business, my life in general, my relationships really shift with age. And I care less about some things and I care more about relationships. So for me, my 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 primary purpose in life right now, you know, like Car- Carl Richards, his statement of financial purpose or something is spend time outside with family, something like that. It's much pithier mm-hmm. when he says it. Um, <clears throat> mine is to make a memory with my two daughters every day, whether it's a big memory, you know, vacation, small memory of, you know, reading them a good book at night. Um, so success to me is a life that allows me to do that, make a memory with my daughters every day. I love that. I love that, Meg. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You're welcome, Michael. I'm so happy you asked me. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.